Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. If you would like to see full, unedited video recordings of our podcast, ask listener questions, or be thanked by name on each episode, please support the show by subscribing at patreon.com backslash Southern Bramble. You're listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light. And I'm Austin Bane X Bramble on Instagram. And today we have a very special guest with us, um, author, educator, uh, witch extraordinaire. Please welcome Thorne Mooney. Thorne, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thorne, let's dive right into it. I know that you have a background in education. So tell us what brought you into witchcraft? Because I think you have quite quite a uh, storied history in the quote unquote occult community. I always tell people that I'm, I'm actually quite a stereotype. Um, I came in in the 90s, the craft came out. I went and I saw the craft. I wanted, I alternated between wanting to be Sarah and wanting to be Nancy and could never really settle. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was the target audience for that publishing boom, particularly with Llewellyn and Teen Witch, right? To write a little broomstick guide for the solitary practitioner. That was me. I was inhaling that stuff as a young person um, going through high school and then college and trying to find my way first without the internet and then with the internet. And now I feel like I live on the internet. So yeah. Um, yeah, I can definitely um, uh, attest to that, especially since creating stuff online in the first place. We kind of live on the internet every now and again. That's fine. Well, I think it was it was just such a relief because the whole, I think, kind of the impetus of the the teen witch and particularly teen Wicca thing that was happening in the 90s was folks were feeling alienated and they were trying to do their own thing and learn for themselves. And you could go to Walden Books or Borders for the first time and buy books about how to be a solitary practitioner and then the internet made it possible to meet other people and that was really a big deal um but I grew up and I ended up um, pursuing things a little bit more traditionally I ended up being initiated into a traditional strain of Wicca um exploring other other sorts of witchcraft and other sorts of western esotericism um and just sort of love all of it Inside you, there are two wolves. One of them is Sarah and the other is Nancy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's something we can all actually totally uh, uh, align with. I mm -hmm. think I remember that's the first time I ever actually saw a rosary, funny enough, not from Catholicism, yeah. but from the craft. And my mom took me shopping around at as many stores as possible to find them. And every single time we stopped at a Bible store or some sort of Christian store, this is before you could just pop on Amazon and order anything because back then it was just books. And um, I remember we kept going and finally this woman said like, ma'am, this is a Christian store. You're gonna have to go to a Catholic store if you wanna participate in that kind of thing. And my mom was like, Catholicism is Christian. What what is wrong with you? And oh, it was not this... from not from the Protestant perspective. No, no of course not. Of that course is the not. weirdest thing that I grew up. So my mother's side is all Protestant, but my father's side is all Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, and so growing up, um, 
I would interact with people. I mean, I was raised Protestant, but I was raised Lutheran, but like not the fun Lutheran because Lutheranism is like, it's like a spectrum. It's yeah, it is a spectrum. And it's not like Episcopalian where Marshall, you call it Catholic light, um, (laughs) which I love. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is on the, it it, it was, it's one of the, the, first few coming out of the Reformation is Lutheranism. So it's still a little esoteric, um, but ours wasn't. But I would interact with kids and they would make this clear delineation between like, we're Christian, they're Catholic. And I'm like, well, no, you're all Christian. You're a Protestant and they're Catholic. There's a difference. And just the, the weird like knowing that at a very young age, but it was just like growing up with that delineation was very strange. Oh, oh yeah, I encountered that too. So it's reversed for me. My mother's family is Catholic and my father's family is Protestant. I wasn't really raised in either tradition, but Catholicism certainly had more influence in the grand scheme of things. And I remember very distinctly other kids telling me at school that that was not Christianity. And then growing up and realizing, oh, it's because Protestants think that Catholics have some kind of like allegiance to the papacy before Christ. Therefore, it's not really Christian. But really, it's just a history of hatred towards Catholicism in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. That's like built into the census. (laughs) Yeah, even when you um, like go through grimoires a lot of the times um even even like okay so scott's discovery of witchcraft right which is a really amazing resource for those of you who don't know scott uh was a what we would consider a rationalist he didn't believe in all this witch hunt nonsense he thought that you all are just a bunch of silly catholics doing a lot of really weird things um and you're not killing witches you're just killing granny demdike down the road and that's probably not a good thing so let me go out into the world and compile what all these weirdo catholics are doing and i'm gonna put it in a book but what he did was he actually like wrote everything down like word for word what they were doing so a bunch of occultists were like you know what actually i'm just gonna take that thank you saving this for later i know that you're a skeptic but i'm not um so it's a great resource of information but um it's just a bunch of him like dogging on catholics and being like oh look at this papery or this popery and um these catholics are just really really silly or really stupid and it's just very very interesting this catholic hate that comes out especially during the early modern period a lot of anti-halloween rhetoric in the united states is actually anti-catholicism people are like oh they hate witches they hate pagans no they hate catholics doing all saints very that very that absolutely (laughs) My favorite line, and here we go again with a uh, tangent into a TV show. My favorite line from Salem that Mary Sibley says is, the only thing worse than a witch is a Catholic. And the way she says it, Catholic. Like it's got three syllables. Catholic, absolutely. Catholic. Mary and Elizabeth, that feud's still going over half a millennium later. One last thing before we move on to our next question. Speaking of your rosary, debacle Marshall so Mm -hmm. I had I had a rosary um oh my god I think I got it at like hot topic or something as one does as one does and my mom obviously like my my they're Protestant so they didn't care um they were like oh what a fun night at least he's not wearing a pentagram today because that was an issue um and so I wore it to school one time but then I also wore my pentagram with it 
And I remember I was in seventh grade and I had, I can't remember her name, but I had this teacher and she came up to me and she was like, you know, that's incredibly disrespectful. You need to take that off right now. And it started this whole, like, I was like, um, actually, this is a public education system. I don't think you can be telling me, like, I'm not breaking a dress code. It was, it was a big deal um, for a brief moment. And I was like, this is really, this is really weird. It was really weird to be put in that situation. But it just, you talking about rosaries reminded me about that. I actually, our school actually did have a dress code stipulating that was against the rules. No depictions of the occult. And I believe that. And I I actually had to fight it because I was wearing a pentagram necklace. And while my mom was very anti, uh, well, she wasn't ant, she went back and forth with the anti-witchcraft stuff when I was very young. I mean, I'm 12, but you know, 12, 13 years old. Um, But I was wearing it. I remember I was told that it goes against the dress code and I had to fight it. And that was the, and even though my mom was felt the way she felt, she believed in, you know, the right to, you know, uh, uh, the equality of the first amendment, which is the freedom of religion. This is a public school. If he takes this off, every single student has to take off a cross and they didn't fight it. So it was kind of like, oh, wow, pushing boundaries. Yay, mom. <laughs> didn't you also, did, didn't your mom work with the school district? She does now a little bit. She's a therapist. She um, owns a counseling center. And now she actually does a lot of LGBTQIA outreach with our, our hometown schools. I love that for your mom. Speaking of family, now that we've gone on a little tangent, yeah. tell me, uh, did this, did getting involved in witchcraft, showing this kind of interest at a young age, did it affect you and your family and your family life? Um, I mean, how could something like that not on some level but i don't have a lot of the stories that many of my peers do um my i'm from a military family um and Mm. i'm also an only child within that family unit um i've got extended family but i was raised as an only child with two parents and both of them are army officers um and I think maybe because I was an army brat, maybe because of their own kind of compl- complicated relationships with religious tradition and family. Um, my background was very secular. Like I think I had probably as secular an upbringing as maybe you can in the United States. Um, so I didn't grow up going to church. Um, religion just wasn't a conversation. People sometimes ask, oh, well, well, your parents were atheists. No, they weren't atheists. They would tell you I'm a Catholic and I'm a Baptist, but we didn't like do Catholicism, right? We didn't like do religious stuff, the kinds of things that you would look for in a religious household. And I can't recall my parents ever providing any sort of guidance as to like religious, like what religious behavior or thinking should look like Um, So my first exposure to witchcraft was also arguably my first exposure to like what religion could look like and what it could do. Um, So it was kind of mind blowing in lots of ways. Um, It was the first time I'd really thought seriously about like, well, what is God? Is God real? Right. What does happen when you die? I think people have this idea that those are like intrinsic human questions. And I don't think they are. I think that we're taught to question that way when we're children. So yeah, I, think, I, I, I got weird um, and my parents felt weird about it, I think, but only because, not because it was going against their religious values, more because like, you'll know this, we were talking a little bit about like wasp culture and this is true in like military culture too. 
like there's a status quo and anything that pushes that status quo is potentially a problem, whether it's witchcraft or like being a goth or like whatever, you know, being queer, like it's all kind of equally a problem, right? Deciding to be a humanities major in college was also a problem, you know? So. That liberal arts degree crap. Right? Like. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, I, I had some, I had some weird, interestingly similar experiences. My dad, atheist, my mom, Episcopalian, you know, Catholic light, as we discussed. And so it definitely created some friction between all of us because my dad did not care or nor believe in it. My mom wanted to give me freedom, but also was scared for my soul. So it was a very back and forth type of thing. Um, but it's very interesting. I had a, both my parents were born in military families. So neither of them were born here in the country. My mom born in Guam, my dad born in the uh, Philippines, raised in Singapore. So it completely changed their, their background, their idea of religiosity, how they were raised because my mom's side, even she struggled somewhat because her mom Episcopalian, her dad Orthodox Jew. Again, a complete divergent and, and split. So it kind of passed down and uh, eventually she kind of just let me, let me roll with it. So, uh, you know, it can always affect our family lives so different. I still have people asking me on a daily basis, how do I convince my parents that I'm not worshiping the devil? Yeah, that's a tough one. And I think, uh, you know, Austin brought up my, my education background. So I, I was a classroom teacher um, for a few years and I worked with elementary age kids, but then most of the time I spent with high schoolers um, between the ages of like 16 and 18, older high schoolers for the most part. And that's a thing. And I think the difficult part, I'm not a parent, okay, but just having watched parents, um, I think probably the difficult thing is realizing that your kid is gonna do it anyway. Yeah. Right, the real question is what sort of relationship do you wanna have with this child? Because they're gonna do their own thing anyway yeah I um I think I've shared it on the podcast before but like it was really tumultuous with me and my family for a long time I mean I they had found out I was gay they'd um mm -hmm. found out I had been having sex with people much older than me that I shouldn't have been having sex with and uh finding out all, I, I'm a witch all in all in one evening it was like an entire it was very tumultuous at the house and um led to a lot of relationship issues between me and, and me and my family for a long time my parents really did not I mean even prior to that there were experiences where like I would have like I, my my interest in the occult started like at such a young age for me going and getting my first deck of tarot cards that my parents thought were satanic um, at Barnes and Nobles and paying with it in quarters and just like taking this big bag of change and putting it up on the the counter and counting them so that I could, <laughs> I could like buy this $12 pocketbook of Barnes and Nobles or Borders tarot cards and um you know, being forced to like sit in front of the trash can and tear them up um, while, you know, crying and, and, and being like threatened and, and shit like that. And so all of this is to say, like, I'm much older now. I'm just starting to, I mean, my parents know what I do. And so that's 
bizarre and I don't necessarily think they like it but like they also prod a lot and they want to know more and there's this harsh boundary that I have to have with them I mean they are blocked from all of my social media except for like Facebook I don't let them see any of what I do because I'm like you're not gonna like it and I'm like a lot worse now like back then I like I didn't even <laughs> go to the crossroads and 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 conjure up the devil at that point and now it's like a, a fair game whoever you know so it's just very interesting this these experiences that we have when we're younger and how they they frame us <laughs> how they shape us so deeply it's I mean like that's that's like actually like heartbreaking tear-inducing like listening to stories like that and I think many of us have things like that I was very lucky my parents are comparatively supportive in the sense that they're very hands-off you know um but yeah I saw the same thing being in a classroom um one of the one of the stories I sometimes share um my first year of teaching high school and it was like the first week and I was doing an exercise with kids where one of the things I do I was a, an English teacher primarily I would um I wanted a snapshot kind of of what their abilities were walking in like first day and one of the ways I do that is by asking them to share a story, write some kind of memoir, something about themselves. That way I get to know them. I can remember who they are and I can assess their writing, you know, just right off the bat. And I had a young man turn a story in and he puts it on the desk. He was the last one to turn it in. And I can see that he's drawn pentagrams in the margins. And he says to me, I just want you to know that I wrote about witchcraft and you should know that it's not necessarily satanic and like my parents already know. And if you have questions, you can talk to my parents, but if that's a problem, tell me now. And I was just like, I'm not allowed to just be like, oh, sweet pea, <laughs> like, me too, right? I can't do that. But inside I'm just like crying with joy and thinking like, I'm so thrilled for like this peanut baby child who like, I would never have asserted myself that way when I was a high schooler. And I, you know, I would never have been like, you can call my parents. They'll tell, they'll put you in your place if you, if you have a problem. I was so proud. It was like the proudest I've ever been in a classroom. And I didn't even do anything. I just received it. <laughs> I love that. Did you ever um, get a chance to ever go back and like tell them about that? Mm -mm. Oh. No, and I, I just really hope they're living their best life. They'd, they'd be an adult now off doing their thing. Um, but I just really hope that I mean, I, I, I think the kids are all right. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so like, I'm supportive on like TikTok and witch talk. And you, you don't, you don't say shit to, to young people because like we have those stories too. Right. And it's a different era. And I think that like those experiences, good and bad with parents, with teachers, with peers are so formative and they stick with us our whole lives. Absolutely. They, they, they truly stick with us. Um, I think I had some similar experiences about coming out being gay to a few of my teachers. And, you know, I think it's such a shame that you couldn't here in America sit across from a student informing and telling them who they are. And you couldn't even say, Hey, I know honey, me too. It's cool. Like you can't say that. So I'm curious. I have a question for you about something. Please. Um, you are you describe yourself as a traditional Wiccan from what I understand is that correct yes so 
a lot of us are introduced very, very early on to Scott Cunningham through solitary Wicca, through solitary Wicca to the, or, or Wicca for the solitary practitioner. Um, a lot of us went through that period of time where that is how we were introduced to Wicca. So um, Scott Cunningham was initiated into an eclectic Wiccan coven by Raven Grimasi. And there's been like a lot of criticism from lineage traditional Wiccans of Scott's work, calling it neo-pagan and very removed from traditional Wicca. Being that Scott Cunningham's books are, you know, they've become so influential in shaping public idea of a solitary Wiccan. Can you shed some light on the situation? Um, tell us a few major departures and differences between solitary or, or eclectic Wicca and traditional Wicca. Like what, what makes traditional Wicca Traditional. traditional Wicca. Sure. I, I think before I do that, I've got so many. That's such that's such a good question. Yes, thank you. Um, I think before diving into Cunningham and Grimasi specifically, we have to think about like the words themselves. And I wanna mm -hmm. I wanna let listeners know my standpoint right off the bat, which is that I'm not gonna tell anybody else like what correct Wicca is or what like good Wicca is. Um, the moniker traditional Wicca developed. Um, I think kind of in response, right? Like people weren't calling themselves traditional Wiccans 50 years ago. Like I think this was a term and for my book specifically, Traditional Wicca Seeker's Guide, um, like that title developed. And like normally when I'm running around in my regular life, I say that I'm a Gardnerian or I'm a Gardnerian witch um, or sometimes just a witch, sometimes just a Wiccan. I almost never just introduce myself as a traditional Wiccan, but it's useful online because of that variety you're talking about. And I also think that a good strong case could be made that because Cunningham is as influential as he is, that, I mean, maybe that's, that's the Wicca, you know? Like if it's about numbers and if it's about reach, I don't know that any group in any, it's kind of like what we were talking about with Catholicism and Protestantism, like who gets to be the real Christianity? Well, do you value age? Do you value devotion? Do you, what, like, what are we, what are we going to prioritize as being the location of the real tradition? If it's age, then we, we'd have to look at like an initiatory Gardnerian, Alexandrian Wicca. If we look at numbers and influence, then you're not going to be Cunningham. Um, so I want to start with that if that's helpful. Um, I, don't, I don't like value judgments just because I don't think that they're helpful for people coming into the craft and learning. Actually thinking about differences, um, some of the big ones are, um, first of all, the emphasis on initiation by itself, I think is probably the, the big one. But again, we can debate what that means. From the traditional Wiccan perspective, that initiation is lineaged. So it's through a teacher, through another person. There's this kind of occult concept that exists in other Western esoteric traditions that has to do with passing power. That exists in initiatory Wicca too. Um, so when people say, well, you know, who, who's really doing the initiating? You know, don't the gods do that? Well, yes and no. In traditional Wicca, like it's, it's a magical rite performed by another practitioner. Um, in conjunction with the gods, um, but that passing of power is really core in initiatory Wicca, what I'm calling traditional Wicca. Um, and we don't see that in Cunningham. Um, we do see groups, we do see group belonging, but the idea that you could, you know, get on Amazon and order a couple of books about Wicca 
and do Wicca um, is very, it's very foreign to like early, early thinking about what Wicca is. I would say that's the big difference, the, the initiation and the idea about lineage. Um, the second thing that's really different and makes people really uncomfortable is hierarchy, right? Like we have to talk about it. Um, so traditional Wicca slash initiatory Wicca tends to be hierarchical as a result of that passing of power. It's not hierarchy in the sense that I have power over you, like I'm better than you, I'm more knowledgeable, the gods like me better, like that would be a problem in a coven setting, which is not to say that there aren't assholes, there are, okay. Um, it's more, I, I like to use the analogy of the classroom because of my education background. Um, I'm not better than the kids in my class. My job as a teacher is to give them the knowledge that I have and then please, sweet Jesus, send them on. <laughs> like go away go elsewhere and I think of that as my role as a Wiccan high priestess too like my job is not to assemble a congregation so that I can feel like special and proud of myself and my own power it's hey I have this toolbox do you want the tools in my toolbox okay let me show you how to use them um, but that's a hierarchical relationship but it shouldn't be a permanent one so those are biggest differences, I think. Um, there are more, I, I think there's a negative connotation with the word superficial, but what I mean is just kind of surface level. There are definitely um, some surface level differences in terms of like what ritual looks like or the sorts of language that we use. Um, but by and large, the ritual structures between like an eclectic solitary Wicca and an initiatory Wicca are very comparable. I mean, if you're familiar with Solomonic magic, if you're familiar with the OTO, like you're gonna see stuff you recognize in Wicca because we're looking at the same source materials. Mm -hmm. um, the other big difference um, is in eclectic spaces, and there's complicated reasons for this, a lot having to, I think, do with the satanic panic. In eclectic Wiccan spaces, there's an emphasis on um, what folks call the Wiccan read and the threefold law, and those tend to be absent in older Wiccan models. Um, that's not to say that they don't exist. Um, individual Wiccans make their own choices. And for those of us coming up in the 90s, particularly those concepts were really hammered into us. Um, but you can also kind of pinpoint moments where they're introduced and where they become important. And a lot of the times they're emphasized by people like Scott Cunningham, for example, who aren't part of these initiatory lines. So are they Wiccan or aren't they? Well, yes. <laughs> that, that was, was, that was no, no, that was an amazing answer. I, um, <laughs> I like that you start off with even saying, you know, let's like, what do you value in religion? Is it history? Is it numbers? Is it reach? Is it on it or truth? Which yeah. that's subjective, you know? And I think too, this concept of, of quote unquote tradition, right? Especially when we talk about traditional witchcraft, parallel to Wicca, has overlaps to Wicca, um, you know, and, and so, and even has more room for deviations from its source material, because it's only a stack of letters that, that we base on, I mean, once you get outside of, of um, the original Cochrane yeah, tradition, it's it's uh 
just full of deviations, right? So, so when we talk about quote unquote traditional witchcraft, um, people tend to gravitate towards that as being like the true lineage of witchcraft. And I'm like, no, no, that's not, that's not the tea. I think, sorry, go ahead. I I was just gonna say, I think it was Marshall who said something on Instagram relatively recently, like people hear the word traditional and they think automatically that you mean it's ancient. Absolutely. We like we do, we tend to use that word that way. Um, And I think the folks kind of surrounding Cochrane and Gardner when like they've had their beef, were also using it that way sometimes because there's this whole idea of like, well, you know, like that Gardnerianism is dumb, like my stuff is older. But like, if you read a lot of the stuff that's coming out with like Troy and Three Hands and like the traditional witchcraft community, the texts that are being put out, authors will flat out say, hey, I'm constructing this from my own experience. I'm building my traditions. And then people on TikTok will be like, this author said it was ancient. Like, no, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, they didn't say that. And it's it literally is being called the old craft. That was literally right? a term used by Cochrane, by, by Cecil Williamson. It was old craft. And while there is historical basis, there is folklore, there is uh, trial records, mm-hmm. what is actually being done today is inspired by that. And sometimes passed down through families, sometimes through coven lineages. But the time that you know Cochrane's traditional witchcraft and and garden and gardeners, what became Wicca, mm-hmm. they were kind of branching from from similar sources, but had different ideas about which direction they they should, they should go. Totally, they're also hanging out with each other, like yeah. people are, people are cross initiating into covens and identify because people. I, mm, these people were friends or, mm-hmm. you know, not, but they were in the same circles in the same way that we are in the same circles, even if we're not hanging out every weekend, like our shared language, our shared experience, the books that we're reading, the media that we're consuming, our witchcraft looks different. And it was very true when we're talking about Williamson and Cochrane and Gardner, right? Like they're drinking from the same trough. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and you know, people will acknowledged even today the witchcraft community quote unquote is relatively small but mm-hmm. imagine what it was like then even mm-hmm. i mean minutes a circle literally a circle and there's gonna it's there's wild. bound to be overlap and so when we we think of tradition it's it's important to remember if you are seeking um there's no there's no right answer there's no inherent truth like I said it's subjective so if you want to to be historically inspired then you need to start reading history if you want to um it's it's a lot of what you said it's it's getting to your values of what do you value in a path of witchcraft because there's so many I, that smallness of our community, I think is so important. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm vocal on different platforms and I'm, I interact in different communities. I think it confuses people. I'm often told, well, you don't seem like a Wiccan, right? Like people look at, well, usually what they mean, if I want to just come out and say it is that they think I'm smart. Like Wiccans are supposed to be, that's totally what they mean. They mean like, oh, you actually read and you're not like a jerk. Like when, when people say, well, you don't seem like a Wiccan. Usually what they mean is 
like I don't think that you're a moron <laughs> so or um, or like placing you with a with um like oh where's your tie-dye t-shirt and your your right. renaissance cloak you know yeah <laughs> and your love and light only us like plaque in the background mm-hmm. right <laughs> but somewhere my car is I, my my car is my other broomstick on on your bumper sticker mm-hmm. um <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced this original group was basically just the original Mean Girls. And, you know, they all kind of broke off their different directions and they all wrote about their different things. And it just stemmed this, this web of witchcraft we now weave. I totally think so. And I think that we benefit more when we talk to each other than when we're like, no, that sort of person isn't allowed into our space. This group is, they're all just stupid. Nobody talked to them. If the book says Wicca on the cover, don't read it. It's not worth reading. Like why, there's like 12 of us. What are we doing? <laughs> so. um, I'm curious actually. So I haven't, uh, I'm next for the next question. Um, now that we've talked about initiatory and certain things like that, uh, different parts of traditional Wicca or Garnerian or initiatory Wicca that were once only available to initiates have now made their way into online public forums, such as the original Gardnerian Book of Shadows. Can you talk about what it means to be oath-bound and how that affects traditional Wicca in the past and how it affects Wiccans now in comparison? There's a lot happening there. Um, Mm -hmm. First, I think that there's a conversation about the value that we place on text and practice. Um, one of the things that I, I, I use kind of a stupid example in my, my first book, Traditional Wicca, where I say like, okay, like let's, here's my flying cat tradition of Wicca. And let's say that like high priestess Glinda, the good Wiccan is like teaching flying cat Wicca. And you come to me and you want to be a flying cat Wiccan. And like, it takes you years and I've got a book of shadows and we've got particular ritual liturgy and you spend years doing it and learning it and helping to teach other students and tra-la-la and you go off along your merry way and you start your flying cat Wicca coven. Let's say that Good Witch High Priestess Glinda's Book of Shadows ends up, you know, somewhere, I don't know, on like the website or whatever. Is that the same as all of the work that you put into like learning with that coven and going off and starting it? Like, I think that there is a component to text that people are missing when all they're doing is reading it. First of all, I'm not sure why everybody is so convinced that just because it's on the internet, it's actually the text. Like, why do we think that? I'm not just even talking about like books of shadows. I mean, just like generally, like if you've been an author and you've seen your stuff pirated, I know like influencers have their, their content stolen all the time and modified like Who's to say, okay, but even if it is, even if like Flying Cat Wicca is on the internet, does that erase the experience of practicing and living the tradition? And I would say no. Um, so like having a text isn't the same thing as living it, I think. Um, and the when it comes to oath making, Um, For me, I think of my oaths very specifically as being, um, they're to my tradition and they're to my gods and they're to myself and they're to my coven. Um, And like, those are very personal. And I think I wouldn't presume to know the limits of another witch's oaths. Um, I also think that when we're on the internet, accusing other people of oath breaking, we're necessarily revealing something that maybe 
we didn't mean to. Like sometimes saying no is just as revealing as saying yes. Um, and maybe everybody should just mind their own business. Like maybe that's the thing that does the least amount of damage. So, on the internet, mind on the your internet, own business. Me not participate in every single conversation. What? <laughs> like, um, I think a lot of the times people miss the point mm. when they say things like, I mean, I've had people say that to me. Um, when I was first pursuing Gardnerian Wicca, I had an elder in our community um, say, it, kind of in our, our public community, say, well, why would you do that? Like, it's all on the internet anyway. Like, go, why go to that effort? Well, because the effort by itself is valuable, right? I mean, like I could go buy medical textbooks too, but presumably going to med school is a different experience. I don't know. I've never been. <laughs> That's very interesting that this idea, you brought up a really good point. Like what is, you can read about ritual, mm-hmm. uh, Meta- metaphysical or like how it works right you can read the the like how to drive a car and then until you're actually in a car driving it yourself I mean it's very different the idea of being in a space I mean we all know that if we objectively looked at ourselves in ritual third party and we were from the outside looking in I would look at myself and I'd be like what the fuck is going on? Like this, like, what are you doing? It looks like you're just spasmodically running or like jerking around in a circle or doing strange voguing, demonic <laughs> voguing uh, at the ball. Like the category bad, category is hellscape or something like that. And, and you're sitting in front of a bunch of candles. Like what, n- there's nothing going on. There's nothing magical there. But when you're actually within that space, you, I mean, witchcraft is deeply personal because a lot of what's going on is within the people participating in the actual witchcraft. So this idea that to read it um, and not you, you not having to experience it, that's very interesting to me. Yeah, and I to bring it back to TV and movies for a second, I, I'm sure Boys. that you, like me, know and love The Witch, right? You've seen this Yes, movie? very much, yes. So there's this, there's this wonderful scene, and whether or not, like, the witchcraft is physically out there happening in the world kind of goes back and forth in that film, but there's this great scene, like, after, like, the baby flying ointment scene, right, which is incredible, um, where the witch is just laying on the floor, And like it cuts to this kind of like misty, like flying, whatever, but then it cuts back and the witch is just laying on the floor kind of doing this. Uh And I'm thinking, ah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Like where are the boundaries between an inner experience and an outer experience? And are those different things? It's um, very much so in today's I don't like the term disenchanted, but in our very material science, mm-hmm. capitalistic worldview, witches have to, many of us, and I'm sure I've done it too, but we always say like, oh, well, we don't really fly, especially to like people who are asking like, okay, what is transvection? What is all this flying business? Why is this actually mm-hmm. important to witchcraft? You're not actually flying. And it's like, well, no, we're not actually fly- flying. We're, we're, dreaming or we're projecting ourselves into another place but think if you ask that 
to somebody a couple hundred years ago, would it would it matter to them? Do you think that I mean the 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 subject of is a witch flying or is she dreaming is is not a, a new conversation. This has been going on since the medieval ages, but um, even then, still, you, you, people are going to like if if somebody's actually practicing transvection. A lot of the times, the answer boils down to does it matter? Oh, yeah. And I think even taking it beyond witchcraft spaces, um, some of the experiences that really made me think about this stuff really heavily didn't happen in witchcraft spaces. They happened um, when I was studying religious studies for the first time. I went to graduate school for religious studies. and I'm still doing that. Um, but I did ethnographic work, um, which means I was going out into these groups um, with a megachurch. So I spent two years doing research. I know, right? Um, I got some stories, y'all, especially from somebody who doesn't come from that background. So it was like, oof. Um, but I spent two years attending this massive megachurch in my city. Um, and I like that meant attending services and also getting involved as a volunteer. And I did this with everybody's full knowledge and consent. It was IRB reviewed by the university, which means that I had approval all this stuff. Everybody who I worked with signed a form that says, you know, we know she's not one of us. She's here to learn. And they were all like, cool, God brought you to us. Like, we don't care. Um, but the way that evangelical Christians talk about gifts of the spirit and communing with God, it's the same way that witches talk about things like flying. So mm -hmm. like individual Christians will have stories about the Holy Spirit talking to me or Jesus appearing before me. And like, they have the same kinds of stories and it's that same question. How literal are we being? And that's not a question that we're asking ourselves necessarily. Like they're not sitting there going like, well, when I say the Holy Spirit speaks to me, what do I really mean by that? Because that's not the point. The point is that what you're talking about, like, does it even matter if the result is the same? But it was hanging out with Christians essentially doing this, this Pentecostal, Pentecostalism um, that made me think about, oh, flying ointments, right? Like, oh, like I get, oh, right? Yeah. Like in my twenties, same conversation. <laughs> that, um, that's amazing. This is, we can cut this out or whatever, but um, if you would not mind later, I'm just saying it now so I can put it out there. Um, I'm actually trying to do a, cause I didn't go to college, but um, an, uh, an amateur ethnographical study on um, queer like study and like queer history in my area. And um, yeah. I would love some pointers on ethnography oh, yeah. if you could We'd share. Love to. We're friends now, happy to chat. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think one of those things that's really interesting when it comes to comparative of of spirituality and religion is like what you were just saying. I think many of us as practitioners, we read stories, we read from educators who are telling us, I had this, I had a spirit come to me in a conjuration and they told me such and such, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of like, okay. I understand as a experienced practitioner that what is going on is somewhere between literal and metaphorical, somewhere between spiritual and ecstatic. It's somewhere that lives in the in-between state, which means I have to at least assume, unless they're giving me more detail, that an actual, like, touchable, you know, 
demon or spirit did not poof in front of them and just sit down and have a conversation over tea. This was something that was happening in a very spiritual um, uh, uh, altered state, if you will. But what I do notice is I think a lot of new practitioners are very unclear about this. I don't think they understand that this is a, a nuanced conversation that involves um, trans states, that involves recognizing whether or not this creature, this spirit, this being is actually physically there. Because I know when I was very new to the Lesser Key of Solomon, the Goetia, looking at a lot of these, you know, 72 demons, I was hell-bent on asking practitioners so was it actually there like it was standing in the triangle and I felt like nobody gave me a straight answer it was very frustrating so I think some of these conversations like we're having right now are very lacking in a lot of the educational spaces because it's just left up to the reader to make the assumption oh totally and that was so difficult for me as a young person I experienced that too and like coming from um mostly a secular background, I would have told you, I, I mean, I spent the bulk of my like younger years telling people, well, I'm an atheist, I'm a skeptic, and I'm, I'm definitely still a skeptic, absolutely. Um, although I'm like hella theistic now. Um, <laughs> but I thought that I was broken. Like I read Teen Witch and Teen Witch is like, when you cast the circle, imagine blue light coming out of your finger and then like see the blue circle. And I'm like, where the fuck is the blue circle? Like, right, cause I'm a child. Um, but I thought that I was doing ritual wrong for years and years because I would go to public rituals like at festivals or drum circles or what, whatever, wherever I could get them, I would go to everything which related. And I'd be standing next to people in circle, almost always older than me. And they would be like breathing heavily and crying, like their eyes closed, hand to hand, I cast the circle, that kind of stuff. And I would be there 15, 16, 17 years old, desperate for a magical experience. And then after, like at the potluck afterwards, people are saying things like, oh, the goddess, like, she was so beautiful. She appeared before me. And I'm like, what? I didn't see anything. Um, and I think if I had had the maturity and the words and like more experience, I would have understood that what those, those people were having profound experiences. Some of them I think are lying. Like, I think we always have to allow for like the showmanship that goes along with public ritual. Um, and now like Instagram, right? Like mm. nobody wants to get on Instagram and be like, oh, my ritual totally tanked, boop. <laughs> like nobody does that. <laughs> um, but I didn't understand that spectrum. At the same time, I don't wanna discount, you know, what we would call like, what, what skeptics would call real magic, right? This idea that the tangible demon does appear before you. Like, I'm not gonna sit here and tell somebody that they're not having the experiences that they're having for the most part, sometimes I will. Um, but I wish I'd understood that. And it was looking at other traditions. And again, when I started studying with a coven where I think I got that nuance and I got those conversations that aren't happening, I think sometimes in public spaces. And it's not because people are ignorant or like stupid or anything like that. I think it's because so many of us are just so hungry for magic. Absolutely. I know we talked about um, your study uh, with megachurches, which is incredibly 
interesting. And I cannot wait to, I will read that paper um, when hopefully it's published. I need um, to rewrite it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I, I know we also talked a little bit about, uh, quote, capital T, traditional witchcraft. Did you ever explore traditions outside or completely separate from Wicca? Um, within the vein of witchcraft, I would say um, only in, only through other people for the most part. My friend circle is large um, and I've participated in, in rituals outside of my tradition. In terms of my personal exploration, my strategy was, okay, like I have this Wiccan foundation um, and I began wanting to figure out where those blocks came from. Um, so I've spent a lot of time um, with thelemites. Um, I, I participate in our local OTO body, which I think is very common amongst um, Wiccans. Um, so my reach into other traditions has primarily been in ceremonial spaces rather than witchcraft spaces. Um, where I have reached out and I mean, I've looked at other Wiccan traditions. Um, the first group that I trained with was, was Blue Star, which is also a, a form of traditional Wicca, at least according to the definition I provided. Um, but in terms of witchcraft spaces, not formally, um, I've certainly done a lot of reading um, and I see a lot of similarities, but my pursuit has mostly been historical. Where are the building blocks of my tradition coming from? I think that's really important. Uh, like I said, if you want a true quote unquote, uh, real witchcraft, then read about it and, and read uh, as much source material as you can, but at the same time, like there's not there's there's many truths in a sea of voices so i think yeah i don't know it also comes back to like aradia and the idea of myth and do we always need truth you know what i mean like truth is really great um but also like it can't myth be really great too like aradia has power because while it is academically scrutinized and is like this probably didn't happen um or this is not like strega is not a you know a historical lineage of italian witchcraft at the same time like when i read it i feel charged like I i'm telling like aradia i literally like for the for banex bramble when i send people things i have um a little card that has diana on it and like one of the lines from aradia because it's just so potent to me and it's from the first chapter you know about dancing naked and uh, to the last of your oppressors are dead blah 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 so powerful to me i know the book is is questionably was it real or not but that's powerful regardless oh sure i will i mean even from i think kind of that broader witchcraft perspective we say the exact same thing about the golden bow and the white goddess right like james frazier is like torn to shreds in academic spaces robert graves like what have you read the white god like holy moly okay but whether or not it is like historically factual i don't think is the thing that we should be prioritizing all the time um, I think that that's a, a very limited perspective and we need it sometimes, but when we're doing witchcraft, we're 
I think actively constructing a reality for ourselves. Like, why am I going to fixate on like, if I wanted to fixate on like the correct way to do it, then like, I would, I would find myself at church. <laughs> and, and that's so true. I mean, look at what we have built entire systems, traditions, belief systems around. Uh, we have Greek mythology, we have Norse mythology, we have Celtic mythology, we have Egyptian mythology. All of those things were products of their own evolving time that changed with migration and people's language patterns moving and how names became different while still representing the same things as societies evolved, um, whether it's you know the Romans or the Greeks. And at the same time, I don't think anyone building an entire practice around the Greek goddess and Titan Hecate mm -hmm. is any more uh, uh, quote unquote correct or true than building an entire tradition around Aradia or around folklore or around Grimm's fairy mm -hmm. tales or around confessions from witch trials that we know were brought on by torture. These systems were inspired and whether or not an actual goddess of air, sky, and sea, or Diana and her brother, Lucifer, had a child together. I mean, these, those, these are these are stories. They're inspirations. They're meant to, um, they're meant to build a bigger picture of something greater in your mind that that truly gives you life, that inspires you, and inspires magic. And I think that's one of those things that a lot of people get really, really lost in. I know there's a big discussion about folklore, and I guess I'm, I'm coming out staying a little bit here, but I'm, I'm writing what I love doing is short stories, and I'm writing what I would call new folklore. And some of it's inspired by old things, but I've been personally writing things off the internet that I'm not posting, oh my God. And I'm writing these really interesting stories and they're from imagination and they've never existed before, but they're still inspiring to magical practice. And just yeah. because they're new or because they're you know, completely fictitious does not make them less legitimate in building your craft around. Oh, totally. Well, and you, I'm sure you both have more experience than me here when we're talking about, when we're talking about Satan, we're talking about demons, mm. how much of what people think they know is actually John Milton, right? Like it's not biblical at all. Absolutely. Like, and no, if absolutely. People, yeah, like read Paradise Lost, we pull so much, I would argue even more of our traditions from literature, from the pop culture of the era. Mm hmm you know, if they'd had social media 200 years ago, we'd be pulling from that too. Like this idea that it's only pure and real if it's from sanctioned sources. What a modern idea. Well, very much that. I mean, we think about conceptualizations of, uh, look at how much Dante's Inferno, or I'm sorry, Paradiso, or uh, the Divine Comedy in, in general, but mostly the Inferno. How has that changed our perception of what hell looks like? Or, exactly. um, you know, I mean, it's even embedded into Catholicism in, in many ways. At this point, mm -hmm. people will talk about the levels of hell, even if they're saying it in a blatant kind of frivolous way. You know, it's even if it's not part of the theology, I'll still hear people who are devout Catholics talk about it, or even mm -hmm. the seven deadly sins, which was a non-liturgical sanctioned thing which is eventually was brought into Catholic doctrine. So 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, same same thing with Lucifer as the fallen angel. Most people talk about this long-standing history that Satan was Lucifer's or was God's favorite angel. And he, you know, rose up an army and fell from the heavens. That's paradise lost. Yeah. That, that that did not exist before like was it the 15, 14, 1500s? I can't remember exactly. It, like I don't remember. It didn't exist. I don't know if that's actually part of the apocrypha or not, but I haven't read the books of Enoch, which I should, but. Well, even, even like looking at the history of the construction of the Bible as a codex, as a singular mm -hmm. book. I mean, like how often do various kinds of Christians have to come together to fight over which books get to be mm -hmm. apocryphal or not? Biblegateway.com. Biblegateway.com. No, I, and I use that a lot. My Bible for me. Well, I I even tell people I'm like I grew up without Song of Solomon, and how mm -hmm. how did I grow up without Song of Solomon? And we grew up with um, uh, the Bible that I use now, uh, King James, King James mm -hmm. version. My Bible, un unless it was because I was young and they just didn't talk about that part of the Bible. But I remember learning my books, and we didn't learn songs. Um, I, it, it was not a part of my church. They just completely omitted that book from the Bible. And absolutely. Mine, mine too, I, as far as I know. I made a joke the other day to somebody. I was like, what if the Council of Nicaea wasn't actively just trying to be bureaucratical by removing books of the Bible? And instead they just got tired. Because I mean, imagine if we added the Apocrypha to uh, the Bible or the book of Enoch, right? Which is actually five books. Uh, like that thing would be massive. No one would want to write it. Little monk mm -hmm. with their little ink and their little pens. What if you made a mistake? Start over. It, it was all a joke, but yeah, that emphasis on yourself. <laughs> and we see it in witchcraft communities too. I mean, kind of going back to your to the question about the Book of Shadows. Well, which one? Right. Like, and you know what? As an oath-bound Gardnerian Wiccan, you could not even technically confirm or deny from what I understand, whether or not that is the Gardnerian Book of Shadows. I could not. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Um, but you know, I will tell you, what, and what I tell folks to do is, you know what, if you're really curious, if you want that deep dive, go read Ronald Hutton, Triumph of the Moon. There's some wonderful tracing there of like Gardner's writing, like his books of shadows, what happens to them, his relationship with Crowley. People are like, oh, well, you know, Crowley really just wrote it. Well, actually, like some of that stuff is pretty well documented by actual scholars and you can go read about it. Yeah, actual scholars, <laughs> not TikTok internet detectives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny, we're here talking about mythology. We're here talking about, about legends, folklore, and how they influence the craft and how that's totally still just as legitimate. We're literally describing chaos magic. Like I, I, I've, I was reading, I've been reading uh, Libra Null lately. And one of the things I find fascinating is chaos magic is literally built around the idea of belief. It's built around the idea of, of not necessarily saying the word egregore, but even if you are making up, just making up your own belief system and you believe it and you put effort and time and prayer into it you're creating something that is now going to exist within the ether because you put stock into it and i'm not saying that everyone's religion is just made up i'm just saying that there is legitimacy in a craft that is inspired by something that doesn't have to have basis in reality and i think that's really under discussed and in a in a time period where everyone is searching for legitimacy and validation mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think we, uh, I think we swing 
where we were in this like really awful time where it was all you know uh personal gnosis but we didn't tell anybody and now we've swung a little bit very much so into the if you don't have every sentence sourced and documented um then your book is invalid and trash and then i think we kind of need to find this middle ground of like you really can have this beautiful documented historically rooted or very at least rooted in something right but yeah, also inspired. like inspired but then you can also take that you know a couple steps further and Where's formulate your tradition right exactly well if we think that if you're a theist if you think that the gods are real or if you think that spirits are real and that we can have relationships with them then why wouldn't they still say stuff to us that's kind of my thought. And I think if you sit down with a lot of witches and if, if you're not a theist, like if you don't live in a spirit-filled world, which I, I think witches like do live in a spirit-filled wo- world. Um, but if we believe in magic and we think magic is real, then like presumably you believe that you have some kind of control over your circumstances and your situation and some sort of impact in the world. But when you sit down with a lot of witches and you say, well, did you, did you ask? Hecate or whoever about like did you ask your god did you like why do we think that the gods can't participate Mm. so like when I write a book and people go well you know like how long did you spend researching it I spent zero time researching it because it's about like my personal and we're so deeply offended oh it's all this author's UPG well I'm sorry I'm like I practice a mystical tradition where I believe that I have direct contact in the spirit world so like yeah where do you think this came (laughs) from Where do you think all of this came from? Right. (laughs) Absolutely. And also like our, our, how, like, could that not technically then be considered source material? Like, I don't think the Clavicula Solomonis um, or the Key of Solomon uh, would be. No, the key, key the key key of Solomon work, lock the doors tight. Um, (laughs) uh, Key King with all my, my demons. Um, No, the, the greater key of Solomon which is a heavily not only researched by the occult community, but it's constantly being academically scrutinized. I mean, probably not in a while, but there's new translations that come out every couple of years. Um, you know, so why couldn't that be source material then? You know, and and it, how valid is that? Well, it's just as valid as we were talking about ethnography earlier, me writing down today's history, sitting down and having a a conversation between somebody about the folklore of this area and writing that down, that becomes source material. So yeah, I don't don't know. I think that there's a couple of things to keep in mind from, from the reader's perspective. Like if you're choosing a book on a shelf and you know what you want, maybe what you want is a history of Wicca. Okay. Mm. Let me just pick something. Um, then that's the thing that you want to see research. You want to see footnotes. You want to see like, this is where I got this information. You want to ask yourself who, like, where is that information from? Is it coming from somebody with a particular background? Is this person an insider or an outsider? Did it, like that, that's when those questions come in. But if I'm a witch looking to be inspired by somebody else's magical practice, then that's what I want. I want I want to see inside of your magical brain, other witch, you know, so I can I can pick from it and I can learn. And I think of most of the books that are coming out 
on, on big presses, right, like Llewellyn Weiser, we need to be thinking of those as primary sources, not secondary sources. Those are individual witches sharing their ideas and their perspectives. If I make a claim that says that like Alistair Crowley and Gerald Gardner went to tea and wrote the Book of Shadows together in like 1942, then I need to back that up, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but if I say, I held this ritual and I encountered, right, like the goddess Freya and Freya told me to do this and now I do this in my practice, like, that only needs a source if your question is, okay, but is that historical? I didn't make the claim that it was historical. Um, like you have to ask yourself what you're looking for as a reader and as an author, like, what am I trying to convey? Absolutely, absolutely. So speaking of historical versus claims, <laughs> um, okay, so you brought up the history or, or, or the subject of the threefold law. Sure. So I kind of want to have a discussion about that because I think, you know, that is a really big topic that gets thrown around a lot. There's a lot of misconception about what that means, where it came from, who wrote it. Uh, can you talk a little about that? And especially in context of, of the satanic panic, because I think you kind sure. of, you definitely brought up, a, hit the nail on the head on that one. Sure, um, and I should preface this by saying that I, while I am um, a scholar of religion, I am not a historian of Wicca. I know that there are folks out there who know more, um, but my understanding and my reading indicates that we primarily point to Gerald Gardner's High Magic's Aid as the source for the Threefold Law. Um, and High Magic's Aid, for folks who haven't read it, is, uh, it's a novel, kind of a kind Fiction. of a bad one, kind of like a gloriously bad one, which you should totally read because it's interesting. <laughs> I feel um, I'm I haven't read it, but I'm just picturing picturing like, you know, um like pulp book style covers that are like oh yeah. you know, you, do you know what a pulp I've is? seen a cover. It looks yeah. very like you'd see it on a dime store novel. Mine mine had, mine had nipples drawn on the woman on the cover. Like Absolutely. The, the and that's exactly like, yeah. what I'm thinking. Very like a little celluloid, very a pulp. little very pulp she's wearing white she's laying back on something there's um there's what's that guy that was on like every pulp uh his name is like font not fonzie um fabio 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 is on there he he's got Fonz. a giant sword the fonz, with a <laughs> the fonz. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at my bookcase um maybe I've probably got it somewhere else um, but yes like it was it was kind of like smut guys <laughs> like um but and I haven't read it in a long time so I can't quote the line at you but there's this idea of like you know the witch has to do like three in kind what's done to them and I couldn't tell you explicitly like how that develops into what we call the threefold law today like I would have to sit down and do like do some scholarship there and other people have done it better than I could at this point but I think it rises to prominence this idea that well the magic that you put out there has to be good because it's going to come back to you um, that really takes hold I think during this publishing boom particularly that happens in like the 80s and 90s um, and what else was going on in the US in the 80s and 90s? Well, we were all real collectively afraid of Satan, right? And I think what people don't realize is that like folks went to jail and were in jail for years and years. If you, had, if you haven't read Damien Eccles, like Damien Eccles would be the person who I would point folks to if they want a snapshot of this picture. Um, but 
he's still having issues. He's in it. He's in a fight right now with the state of Mississippi. I, I, I genuinely feel, um, I, I don't know him and I mm-hmm. don't know his story very much, but I just like, I feel so like deeply for this man because I'm like, I am sorry that it's been 30, 40 years and you're still having to deal with this. I, but yeah, no, it ruined people's lives. Still it, is. Yes. And so when witches are publishing books about witchcraft, I don't think people realize how, like we say what we will about Gerald Gardner, but the publication of books about witchcraft and how to do witchcraft and interacting with witches in the 50, like it's illegal in like, put you in jail illegal in places. Um, so in the 80s and really into the 90s, and I blame the Columbine shooting for part of this too. I remember what that did to like the goth and punk kids at my high school. Mm. Like suddenly we like we were policed as far as like how we were allowed to dress and the music we were allowed to listen to. If you listen to Marilyn Manson, like straight up trip to the guidance counselor, like kids were suspended from school. Um, but imagine that actually like, did happen to me. Funny enough, yeah. I had a situation where I wrote a poem about bullies. That's it, about bullying in school. And I was known for bringing witchcraft books to school. I was known for having some alternative ideas. And they had to call my parents in. Yeah. They had to call. They they this was right after Columbine too. So it was a serious situation, and I didn't understand the gravity of it. And it was so strange because my mom didn't understand why they chose to to single me out and my dad didn't believe I wrote the poem so it was this very weird like my school is attacking me the students are ostracizing me my mom's fighting for me my dad doesn't even believe I wrote it it was an extremely tumultuous time and I know exactly the kind of feeling and tone of society you're talking about yeah so that's the tone for folks who weren't there now imagine that somebody finds that I'm a witch Oh, don't worry. It's only positive magic. Like that was the, so my first book about which, about witchcraft, one of my first books was Teen Witch by Silver Ravenwolf and Teen, Silver Ravenwolf gets criticized for that book because one of the things that opens it is like a letter to teens and a letter to parents. But one of the things that Silver Ravenwolf is hammering in that book, hammering, hammering, hammering is be careful who you tell, be careful who knows. And it's not because Silver Ravenwolf was a jerk or trying to make you paranoid. It's because people went to jail for being tied to the occult. Um, and I'm not saying that that was the right perspective or whatever, but the fact that things like the Threefold Law and the Wiccan Read are just hammered the hell into people in the 80s and 90s, I think is in large part because of the background at that time, the culture. Um, like you can't discount that stuff. And we can have different feelings about it now because now you can be a witchcraft influencer. That was not a thing, yeah. <laughs> you know? And the insistence up and down now, kind of one of the hills I'll die on. Um, I love arguing about conceptions of religion, definitions of religion, whether or not witchcraft is a religion, I think is an interesting conversation. Um, and I've got lots of complicated feelings and I think people should get to use whatever words they want. But in the 90s and early 2000s, we wanted everybody to say it was a religion because that's the only way we didn't get suspended at school, right? Like people lost their jobs. People went to like, 
yes, it's a religion. Like, even if you don't think it's a religion, maybe it's okay if the government thinks it is. Absolutely. I, no, at I that fully point, agree. It's a protective freedom. Mm-hmm. And that's why everyone's wanting to be like, yes, no, it is a religion. And honestly, anybody can have the conversation it is an interesting conversation but for all intents and purposes what it boils down to is that it is still some sort of religious practice so you might as well it's like we can have the 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 argument in in the community but like yeah no just tell people that it's a religion just move on move on there are more important things and if the government isn't peering into what we're doing sometimes then like that's a good thing usually like fuck the man like yeah, whatever right. we think privately in our community can we please just agree to fuck the man mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> um so i think a lot of that stuff that wiccans in particular get criticized for now which is not to say that wiccans shouldn't be criticized okay but that particular criticism i think we need to think about the context in which those things are being promoted um and they're really inserted i think into a, not just wiccan because it wasn't like it was just Wiccans who were promoting things like the threefold law and um, the Wic- like the reed, right? They called it the pagan reed at one point in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like it was just us, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but that comes from a place and it takes root because of things that are happening wider in the culture. Absolutely. That's, um, and, and we are very quick to forget that people in who are you know just getting exposure to the occult community i mean some people are relatively young um and i'm i'm relatively young and i don't you know i i was born in 97 so by this point the satanic panic was a a, a distant memory for many people except for the people who are still in prison for it and so think of that now it's 2022 people like i i don't think people can even imagine um the fear uh the ostracization um it's just a a really weird time and it wasn't just happening in america it was happening in the uk it was happening in a lot of different places and the the chokehold that it had because it went so much farther than the occult I mean it got into some really nasty stuff so it's yeah it's just I can't imagine there's a lot I know um we've been talking a lot about traditional conceptualizations of practice what is tradition and stuff like that you have a book about traditional Wicca can you Mm -hmm. tell us the process of uh writing that Um, I, so the joke that I make is that I wrote that book because as a coven leader, I wanted to spare myself more emails. (laughs) So like, I wanted a book that I could just be like, here you go, read this, send. Uh Um, because as, as a Gardnerian coven leader in particular, like, I just don't think it's an awesome idea to tell the average seeker to go read Gerald Gardner. I think that might even be a bad idea. <laughs> so, like, first of all, most people just lie about reading it because it's bad. He's, he's bad. Like it's, he's terrible at writing. Like they're, it's, it's historically significant. Like, I think the utility is really limited though. And it certainly isn't like what Wiccan covens look like in 2022. <laughs> um, 
So I wanted something that was updated. I was tired of recommending books that had been written decades ago and sometimes in different countries that didn't reflect what I was doing. Um, so I wanted something that broke things down really cleanly and also included sections about like how to spot like abusive groups or liars or like how to how to write an email so that somebody actually writes you back. Like that's the kind of stuff in that book. I think people on Amazon were a little irritated that I wasn't like more mystical about it. But like with my flying cat tradition, you got to experience some stuff, not just read it. Um, so I wrote that book very selfishly for like me and my immediate community to spare us all email. <laughs> um, and I'd like to think that it's more widely applicable. Um, but the second book I wrote, The Witch's Path, that was the one that was that I was really like, okay, everybody else who isn't just people trying to email covens, here's one for you. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that because like I remember I was talking to my friend Nike and and she has a whole um or sorry, they have a whole, uh, yeah, they have, thank you so much. I, they have a whole, uh, uh, YouTube channel full of videos of basic and then beyond basic information. And they told me that the only reason, the sole reason they made that was because they kept getting asked the same questions over and over again. And they just wanted to have a resource that they had, they could put out and say like, Oh, you have this question. Here's a video. Oh, I actually have a topic on that here. See, the, go mm -hmm. to this video because sometimes I know now if I wanted to start making a YouTube channel, I've chosen not to do so specifically just because there's so many other videos and books, of course, already out there saying a lot of these basic topics, but at the same time, if I wanted to start talking about the things that I wanted to say right now, maybe my own personal UPG, maybe some specific mm -hmm. rituals, rites, whatnot, I feel like I couldn't just jump right in and I'd have to make sure there was a basis of foundation first. Um, so I completely understand what you mean by just, you know, I need to get this stuff out of the way. So just in case you have these questions, here's a resource for you. I've already written all down. I was like, it was like being a classroom teacher when like, I'm assigning you homework, knowing full well that you're not going to do the homework right? Like that's what would happen with my, with my kiddos. But even if they don't do the homework, I still have to make sure that they can read at the end of the year, or whatever, pass their test. So I need to find a way to get them to point B, knowing that they're not going to do the homework the way I want them to. And I feel like adults are the same way. Like we like to pretend that we're different than children, but we are not. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of like English grad students out there pretending that they like Ulysses by James Joyce. Like, no. So me as a Gardnerian priestess, I'm not going to pretend that everybody is just going to read and understand Gardner. Because like, no. <laughs> so let's get to point B another way. Uh -huh. Absolutely. I tried. Uh, you know what? Hats off to you for that because that's, like, <laughs> that's like well, me trying I, to. Oh, sorry. I was just say I downloaded Scribd, and they have all these really great documents on there and older books that that you can get really easily. I would just kind of flip through and look at a few things, and I was just like, no. Well, in my copy, now. <laughs> my copy of Meaning of Witchcraft definitely has like smooshed corners because I've thrown it across the room a few times. You know, like. Sometimes books need to be thrown across the room. That's like me, um, you know, it's like when people are like, oh yeah, go read Agrippa. I'm like, oh, well. Okay. Right. <laughs> I'm like, you 
beginners. Very. Yeah. And it, it's mm-hmm. not, he, it's, I don't know. I, I do kind of have this love of Agrippa, especially the second book is, I actually find very fascinating. There's tidbits, but like to read it, it it's one of those books where you have to go to it and you have to open it up and you have to flip to a page and you read that page and it's like, oh my God, that's so fascinating. And then you close it, you put it back on the shelf and you don't look at, look at it for like another week or so. It's, to read it linearly is like a drag. It's like the handbook for the recently deceased. Very, <laughs> Very exactly. Um, I always so, wanted to be that, that, um, that woman uh, with the slit in her neck for Halloween. And I thought about like, um putting a fog machine and like putting it like in (laughs) like um uh siliconing I'm trying to think special effectsing it to my neck and I used to smoke so I was thinking about actually um doing that one year anyways that's way off topic (laughs) (laughs) um speaking of I want to switch a couple of these questions just one of these questions around since I think it'd just linearly go better this way um you brought up the witch's path Mm-hmm. I love The Witch's Path. It oh, was so, I, I seriously did. It was so instrumental to kind of speaking to me on a really personal level. I feel like a lot of witchcraft books are speaking to us in, ver- in a lot of metaphors and stories and personal experience, but it kind of actually came across as very human to me. If that, And I mean that in the best way. You mm-hmm. open the book by talking about oh, it's the full moon. Oh, I didn't prepare. Oh, I'm too tired for this. Life gets in the way. And I was kind of shocked because that wasn't the first thing I was expecting to read when I, when I read it, but it spoke to me because I can't tell you how many times I'm like, oh, fuck, I forgot it's the full moon. Oh, crap, I didn't prepare for anything. And especially in a world where online witchcraft has become such a huge motivator and sort piece of place of source material. Everyone's like, what are you doing for the full moon? Oh, I'm setting my intentions for the full moon. And it's okay to not have something prepared for the full moon. And I, I really love that that's how it opened because it immediately spoke to me where I was living, especially as someone, I'm not a novice. I wouldn't say I'm a master, but I'm somewhere in the middle of experience. And um, I would love to know what brought you from writing traditional witchcraft to writing the witch's path, speaking on a larger scale? Um, so a lot of it had to do with experiences that I was having as a classroom teacher and also as a coven leader, where I find becoming Thorn Mooney the author and getting mm. to spend more time at events, talking to people, meeting people. Um, I think that even bigger than our individual traditions, whatever sort of witchcraft we're practicing. Most of the time when we run into problems, it's usually because of stuff that we have in common, just kind of like boring, monotonous, like human stuff, right? Like I'm busy, I don't like my job, I deal with depression, right? Like I don't have enough space in my home. Um, You know, like I don't have access to books. Like we have a lot of the same hangups. I mean, you and I, like we were all able to share stories about like confusion as beginners, you know, are people being literal? Are they being metaphorical when they talk about like spirits? What does that mean? Blah, blah, blah. Like those are shared experiences that are bigger than, well, I'm a gardenarian. Well, I, you know, practice, you know, you know, I'm in the clan of Tubal Cain or whatever. Like we, the 
experience of frustration and hitting a plateau, I think transcends individual tradition. So I wanted to write something not about a particular kind of witchcraft or to teach people like my kind of witchcraft. I wanted something that would make us all collectively look at what it means and what it looks like to be stuck and how to not be stuck anymore. Um, that's what that book was about. And I think it was well-timed because um, the pandemic happened when I was partway through writing it. And then it was released during the pandemic um, when I think a lot of us were a lot stucker than we were before. Um, so I wanted to use really pragmatic strategies. I wanted to kind of get away from like the woo-woo stuff because like I'm, I'm totally woo-woo. But like being woo at somebody from afar, especially through a book, is often really not very effective when their problem is like time management or like chronic illness. I mean, like getting mystical at somebody. I, I had some I had a lot of teachers in, in the craft coming up. Um, and a lot of the books that I read where the solution to everything was, well, you need to meditate more. Right. Well, you need to you need this particular tool or you need you need to just take it seriously, take it seriously and do the work. If you're serious, then everything will fall into place. And I don't think we mean to put that attitude forward, but we do. And that doesn't actually help anybody. No. I definitely That's agree. I um, one of my least I, I, I share the same sentiment. I, I really don't enjoy. Um. And I am a very, I talk a lot about conjuring spirits. I have very mystical, wonderful, powerful experiences. But the, um, the thing that happens a lot, and luckily I don't see it very often anymore, but like some, like I've publicly posted before, like, don't spiritualize what what's like pain or you don't need to spiritualize that one of my favorite like why is this happening to me or what is going on or blah 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 like the best answer sometimes that you can give is either no answer at all um and instead just sit there and listen um but honestly sometimes what it boils down to is that life just sucks and sometimes things just suck I don't know how to like um like I know people who are like witchcraft isn't gonna fix your depression uh it's mm -hmm. it's not or it's not going to cure it. it might be able to help you can use that in tandem but or uh it's not going to make chronic illness go away or you know it's things just suck sometimes and uh that is the answer, you know, I don't know that there is no answer, you know? Yeah, there's a, a really popular attitude that I think folks still hold, but it was, again, one of those ideas that I think was really hammered into us, particularly in like the 80s and 90s, was that like, there's no such thing as the mundane. Everything is magical and your job as a witch or a magician is to integrate the magic with the mundane so that the mundane isn't a thing anymore and everything is magical. And I get it and I understand the sentiment of that perspective. I think it has to do with like, we're, we are, we're enchanting the world. But I think that that perspective runs the risk of what you're talking about, where now we are criticizing people for struggling 
where like, oh, well, you're depressed. Well, have you tried magicking harder, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. oh, well, you, you struggle with your job. Have you tried making your job magical? And like, I don't want washing the dishes to be fucking magical. Like sometimes I want my witchcraft to be a respite from the mundane. And like somebody on the internet or in a book telling me over and over again that like I could fix hating my soul sucking job by just making it a part of my witchcraft practice. Like no, like no, uh-uh. It's okay to have multiple realms and to step in and out of them. I think that fits in very nicely with the idea of the witch as a hedge crosser and as a world builder. Like washing the dishes and mopping the floor doesn't have to be witchcraft if you don't want it to be. And I don't want it to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's just, the answer is, I, I really think sometimes, especially for spiritual people, especially when I'm like doing a reading for somebody, um, and a lot of people, especially when you're doing divination, um, sometimes people are expecting an answer or expecting a something that is a spiritual problem. Granted, I do do a lot of work for practitioners. I do do a lot of assessing curse work, assessing maleficium, uh, breaking witchcraft, or you know, seeing you know spirits that are pissed off or something like that. But even with all that being said, sometimes I'm like, there is, there, there's nothing, there's nothing here, but what I can do is I can listen and I can try to point you in the, the best direction of resources. And honestly, a lot of the time, sometimes you just don't have an answer for what people, sometimes it's not even a question, even sometimes people just want to share something um with somebody or just to take a load off and to vent for a minute because venting can be really nice sometimes and it doesn't always need a response so yeah no I, I fully feel that I um you mentioned COVID and and feeling stuck and we're kind of talking about that now how did COVID um restrictions how did that affect your practice and how how did you maneuver that um in a couple of ways, there's, there's been good and bad. Um, you know, I think, I think like, ob obviously COVID is terrible, but I do think that it brought, it brought about changes in my personal life that were really significant and really positive. For example, being allowed to work from home was huge, not having a commute, having time. Um, my mental health improved pretty drastically. Um, and it's, in part because I realized, oh, like the reason I've hated my jobs isn't because I'm terrible. It's because I'm neurodivergent in an office. And like, I'd never thought about that. And when you took the office away, like my productivity went up. So like in the same way, I had more energy for witchcraft. Um, I felt like I got my time back and my brain back, which was wonderful. But as a coven leader, who's practicing something that is you know, tradition-based and group-based, um, most of the covens that I know of aren't meeting or at least aren't meeting in the same way. I know some group leaders who've shifted to like virtual coven meetings um, or they're, they're just experimenting. And I, I think that that's really awesome. Um, I've often thought that it would be worthwhile to investigate like what does, what does an initiatory witchcraft tradition look like at a distance? Is such a thing even possible? And groups have tried this in in the past, not just witch groups, but magical groups have experimented kind of with the correspondence course or correspondence initiation, that sort of thing. Um, 
I think those exercises are useful when we're looking at things like class disparity and tra I mean, like if somebody can't afford to go to a coven meeting or doesn't live near one, does that mean that they're not suited for the tradition? Well, no. Um, but that said, my individual coven was in a place where the folks who were circling with me had been with me long enough that they were working with their own people at this point. Um, and it disrupted our rhythm as far as like when we could get together, when we could circle. So I was watching them have a lot of the struggles. Um, but I've been made to ask myself, what does my traditional practice look like when it's just me? Um, and not that I had never done that before, but when you actually just can't like circle with people who you circled with for years and we're going in, you know, third year of pandemic here. Um, what does that say for group-based traditions? Um, but I choose to think of that as an interesting experiment rather than a problem. Um, so we'll see. And this is again one of the one of the many hills that I will die on is that covened witches are also solitary witches. Like you need to have a personal practice, you need to have a solitary practice. Even if you see your coven, you know, once a week, that's still six days where you're by yourself. So figure it out. And that's that's where I am now. And you know, I think it's funny, I feel like the witch's path came at exactly the right time. And it and I'm imagining had some influence COVID must have had some influence in the process of your mindset and thoughts that went into that because I noticed and you brought up homework earlier which I loved um I noticed the you talk about exercises and there are some really poignant exercises in the witch's path and you urge your readers to use them whether that was it wasn't like don't come back and think about them later like stop do them do them now it was very very uh, as an urgent part of of reading your book which i really appreciated can you can you tell us why that was so important to you oh yeah that is all my inner high school teacher um right like i and this is how i i'll i approach university classrooms too because adults are the same way like adults are not better than children like the learning is still a thing um if you tell somebody just think about this that doesn't mean that they're actually going to do that or take action and it definitely doesn't mean that they're going to reach the conclusions that you want them to as a teacher mm -hmm. um so instead make them do something now the thing that they do could be different which is why for each of the exercises in the witch's path, and this is how classroom teachers design classes, whether or not you were cognizant of it in you know, your high school and middle school classes, there's like point B, like here's the point that your teacher wants you to get to, but every, every kiddo is starting in a different point A, and the strategy that you get to point B can be really different. So like my point B might be, I want you to have an experience of the world that suggests an other world, a sense of the sacred. Does that mean you need to worship a God? No. Does that mean you need to have a sacred relationship with the land? No. Does that mean that you need to have a sacred relationship with your body? No. But those are all examples of the same point B, spirit-filled world. So the exercises that we get there could be really different. For a Wiccan, it might be like building up a connection with the God and goddess. For somebody practicing a, a more traditional form of witchcraft, it might be land-based, right? Am I cultivating a relationship with the space that I live on? Um, like those strategies are different. So every exercise I asked myself, where do I want readers to end up? 
And then I came up with different strategies for different kinds of witches, not necessarily traditions of witches, but like, are you a beginner? Are you an old hand? Are you just like bored and disillusioned? Maybe you've been practicing for decades and you're a coven leader and you're just burned out. Like I asked myself in each of these spaces, what would I need? And sometimes what I would need is a journaling exercise. Sometimes I would need some kind of ritual. Sometimes I would need some kind of like reframing my thinking exercise. So that's why in each of the chapters, um, I went, I went with an elemental framework because I thought it would be like familiar to most people. And Llewellyn was really into it too, right? Like make it the four elements. Um, but I wanted it to be widely applicable. And you know, it's funny. I asked this not only because I wanted to bring this up, but I'm, I'm glad you're explaining this. I have those exercises right here that I did after reading it. I'm going to show my teacher the homework. Yes. A plus. <laughs> Thank you. But it was really wonderful because for me, I, I listen to a lot of people I admire who talk about daily practice, who talk about spending time daily devoted to your craft. And I think there gets to be a lot of really um, uncomfortable discussions about like, oh, well, you can't expect me to do this every day. I can't meditate. I don't have time to meditate every day. I don't have time to do this every day. And, and I think that it kind of comes down to a misconception about what daily practice means. Because reading your book, some of the exercises that were in there really helped me reframe my idea about what that means. That doesn't mean sitting down and meditating for half an hour every day. That doesn't mean doing LBRP every day. That doesn't mean doing a sun salutation every day. That doesn't mean having to do all of these pre-thought out and worked rituals. Sometimes it's just a daily affirmation where you are recentering your mind around where it needs to be to be healthy for that day. Sometimes it's about maybe making a prayer or writing a personal prayer or reading one that's already written to your deities. And I actually, I wrote two that I'd love to share with you if you if you wouldn't mind with the rest of the yes. listeners too so two things um there was one specifically we talked about uh, uh it wasn't quite affirmations but it was kind of like something to kind of wake up and start yourself every day and so I wrote I am wise I am observant I am connected I am cunning and I am never alone as long as the spirits are with me and it was just something that I would kind of start up every single day, recognizing, looking in the mirror and saying, and it becomes, honestly, it's so, it's so small. Eventually it becomes very memorizable, which is, which is really nice. Um, and then I also wrote a conjuration of gratitude. I wanted to kind of start the day with this idea that I'm thankful for the sun rising, no matter my situation. And so um, I wrote what I called a conjuration of gratitude. Even if I'm not feeling super thankful that day, I'm going to conjure that damn feeling if it kills me. <laughs> so um, I wrote, um, I am grateful for this day from head to toe in every way. Spirits of East, South, West, and North, familiars for do come forth. By snake, by hare, by toad, by crow, by king, by queen, above and below be with me and guide my way for I am grateful for this day okay. and that was just something that I had never sat down and went I'm going to write this this is something that I'm going to say every single day and what's interesting is I actually don't still say these because it spurned an entire practice it has completely inspired me to start writing more individual prayers to my my spirits yeah. more specific conjurations by name by relationship and it's definitely changed the way that i now do not only daily practice 
but how I see my spiritual court. So I would, and I'm not just talking your book up because you're here. Like I would recommend (laughs) this book to anyone looking to expand their daily practice, to find out a little bit more about going beyond what's expected. Yeah. I mean, just a a couple of things there. Thank you for sharing. Those are gorgeous. Um, Well, thank you. It's funny. Like it's, the, the 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 beginning of like well it's not affirmations exactly but like very clearly like that's a nod to like new thought and this idea that I create my reality and if I speak something it becomes real and we know that like new thought is not witchcraft but we know that these things have relationships and my perspective as a witch is if shit works I'm gonna steal it you know what I mean like like I'm gonna I'm gonna co-opt this idea um and like, if I can, if I can use that in a way that that's beneficial. And I think a lot of witches don't try things because they're afraid it's going to look stupid. And like, I know that when I wake up in the morning and if I tell somebody that like, I'm doing affirmations, a lot of them are going to think I'm stupid, mm-hmm. but you know what? Like if, if it's working, then that's, that's what I'm going to do. And if we want to come up with something else to call it, that's okay. Um, and just kind of the, the second part of that is, I think even, even more than a daily practice, the emphasis is regular practice. Yes. So like you can't do things daily, that's fine. One of the analogies that I use is um, running or maybe going to a gym. Like if you are not used to doing anything physical at all and you decide that you wanna be a distance runner, you don't go outside and run 26 miles. Like that's not going to work. <laughs> Um, and if you run every single day, like not all bodies are built for that. You could hurt something like you could hurt your knees. Like that can be really hard on your feet, et cetera. But if you run regularly, that's better than not running at all. If you want to be a distance runner, mm-hmm. if you go to the gym for whatever reason, it's better to go, you know, twice a week for half an hour than to never go. Like you'll be, you'll be stronger if you do that. So I think we're so all or nothing. I wonder if that's an American attitude sometimes, like we're, we're just so all or nothing. So to witches who struggle with daily stuff, so do I. So instead of daily stuff, you know what, if I can meditate three times a week and not every day, that's still three more times a week than like what maybe I was doing years ago, like find the things that fuel you. And it might not be meditation and it probably is not running. Oh God, I hate it. But like, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, find the things that fuel you and find a way to do them regularly and decide how much of that is necessary for you. Mine's like visualization and personal prayer now. And since mm-hmm. I started writing a bunch of these things, it, 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 it branched off into, okay, I'd like to write a, a, a devotional to the witch king, a devotional to the witch queen, a devotional to the spirits. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm building up this court system that now has become a full-on ritual and vocation aspect. And what's cool is I've even gotten a daily prayer that is kind of a condensed version. And I say it every night while offering incense. And it's gotten to the point now, I don't even open the book anymore. I stand there, I light the incense, I light the candle, and I can say it and I can visualize it because it just because I say it so regularly, it flows off the tongue. And now it's one of those things that I don't, I don't need to actually be at my altar. I don't need to, to set aside a huge chunk of time when it comes down to it. I can say this anywhere. I think that's, 
that's the goal is like the building of the personal practice. Can you do it yourself? The solution isn't, you know, hey, Marshall, that's great. Will you put that in a book so everybody can use it? No, mm -hmm. it's do it for your own, do it for your own craft. Um, and I do, I think we collectively overlook things like prayer and things like devotional poetry. Like they're so mm. powerful. I mean, there are other modes, but those are two that I think are really great. Absolutely. Speaking of putting things in books, uh, you have quite a very large library that I can see. It's really beautiful. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. It goes yeah, on. It Is that a wraparound? It's just like. No, um, behind me, I actually have um, my work desk. So I have like my writing desk. And then when I have to like go do customer service, like production editor stuff, I literally sit at a different desk. Like that's me transitioning. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I totally get that. Um, can you tell us a bit about your thoughts on the importance of reading as well as the statement you made a while back about books not being the most important thing. Oh yeah, um, this is something I emphasize. So I love books, I have a lot of them. I work book buying into my monthly budget, <laughs> okay. Um, I'm a bibliophile. I'm also a book person professionally. I'm, I'm a production editor for a publishing house. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a scholar, I'm a writer, whatever. Um, that's not because I'm a witch. Like my love for books is related to, it's my love for books and witchcraft can fuel that. But I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that like, well, if you wanna be a witch, you also have to be a reader. You have to transform into a historian if you wanna practice traditional witchcraft. And I think that we do seekers such a disservice when we only emphasize one mode of learning. Um, books are great. Um, but there's so much else out there. And it's another reason why I'm so, I'm such a believer in social media and in the internet is because how much more accessible, I mean, if witchcraft is about folk tradition and it's the magic of the people, well, the people aren't at the university, like reading Owen Davies and Ronald Hutton, like that's not where, like it takes specialized training, i.e. lots of money to learn how to engage with text that way. Um, so books are wonderful, but learning by speaking to people, I mean, the craft is an oral tradition, like whatever sort of witchcraft we're talking about, it's an oral tradition. Um, learning through video, learning through social media, like those are equally valid. Doesn't mean that one method isn't necessarily easier, or perhaps more reliable than another for any given topic. Um, but books are snapshots like frozen snapshots of an individual writer's thinking in that moment and we have to treat them that way you know you have to think about the context surrounding them you can look at somebody's body of work over a period of time but just because it's printed on paper doesn't mean that it's realer or more valuable than something that's happening on youtube or like at a workshop or in a coven meeting um I love them because I love books. And I, I like to trace kind of our history through books. Um, but I would not tell anybody that that's the only way to learn witchcraft. And I work really hard to never tell seekers that, well, you have to, you have to do your research and read lots of books. If you, if, you're, if you don't like books, you better not be a witch. And I see that everywhere on like TikTok and Instagram. Um, and that's just so exclusive. It's ableist is what it is. And it's classist. 
I think while books are very important, I know, Austin, one of the reasons you and I wanted to make this podcast was because I know for me, podcasts have been a point of accessibility. It's been a point of, of, of education. And I wanted to participate in sharing the things I was learning, sharing my experiences. And I think we both kind of are on the same page of recognizing the importance of putting out more availability. And um, I think that you're, I love that you mentioned like YouTube pages and social media because you, I mean, funny if this actually kind of <laughs> transition us into our, into our next question, you have really um, made a huge splash in my opinion on TikTok or witch talk as we like to call it so. um, <laughs> with your educational videos. I mean, you sit there in this massive library and I love actually, I like kind of sometimes saving the videos, then zooming in and seeing I, the books in the background. I encourage people to do that. I love that because I've, I've had some of the same books. I noticed there's lots of duplicates of some of those books too. I like that they're, they're, they're always present. And it makes me very aware of the fact that one, I'm listening to someone who's research their shit <laughs> just flat out I know I'm listening to someone who's researched their shit um, can you tell us a little bit more of that process what brought you to TikTok sure um, a lot of it was that accessibility and part of it too was kind of like I really think that we shit on TikTok in particular mm -hmm. and I think some of that is just that we don't like young people we especially don't like young women like my follower base on TikTok it's like 97 percent people identifying as women like we don't like young women. And I think that we especially don't like it when they, we perceive them as having some kind of authority. Um, mm -hmm. There's definitely a threat I've seen in like author communities. Like we don't like influencers, like they're not real. Like these kids turning to social media when like books are the real thing. And like, that's because, that's because of an insecurity. That's not to say that everything on social media is great. Okay. But like, I think that sometimes that knee-jerk reaction to hate something is really like, it's the same kind of discomfort that my dad feels like when I want to change the channel and like not watch Madlock, you know, it's like, a, like I want something different, <laughs> you know? Um, I was kind of like glib and silly, but it's, I think it's kind of a get off my lawn thing that we're doing. Um, and then one of the reasons why the books are always present, like, first of all, I tend to, I tend to shoot in my office, which is where the books live. But I really want to make it clear to people that it's not my goal to make more Wiccans, sweet Lord. Like, I don't think people need that. <laughs> okay. Like, I want to talk to, I want to talk with other sorts of witches. And the books are a way of signaling, like, look, there's like, there's other people, like there's Cochran and Shani Oates and like Michael Howard's over here. And like, there's James Frazier and there's Crowley and like, and I, I acquire books from people who are different than me. You know, like I've read all of like the pretty hardback Instagram books that everybody like shits on. And um, like, I just think that we do ourselves a disservice when we decide offhand that some things just aren't worth exploring. Um, like I, I think witchcraft is cool. It's like when I was 13 and I saw the craft, right? Like I just want to do witchcraft and magic everybody. And like, you call it what you want, but like, if you want to talk about witchcraft, I want to talk about witchcraft with you. I don't care if you're Wiccan. I'm not talking about Wicca. Like, so that's what the books do. That was a conscious choice. At least I hope that's what they do. <laughs> 
Well, uh, I like that we we're talking right now uh, about podcasting and YouTube and just the different modalities of learning. And granted, not everything is, there is no right source, right? I mean, like there's misinformation everywhere. There's misinformation in books even. So like people want to shit on social media. It's about the discernment of the person engaging with that content as opposed to, uh, I mean, there there's responsibility that creators and authors have to take on too, but, you know, also like don't read everything you hear, you know, or don't believe everything you read and or hear. And so, like you said, I'm, we're engaging with different modalities of content. And one of my biggest things right now that I have been writing about a lot and talking about a lot is that we're in this beautiful period that comes with a lot of problems too, particularly in information um, and misinformation, but we're in a beautiful period right now where the practitioner has the ability to speak. Um, We're not governed by um, institutionalizations of occult thought, i.e. that's usually gonna take place in a publication. Um, the, the publishers typically have the ruling of, of what occultism, you know, to, to publish your thoughts and works. So what we're seeing right now is this beautiful expansion of, of knowledge. People have the ability to create a podcast. You can literally do it from your phone. Um, you can make a YouTube channel. Um, you can start a TikTok, you can write a book, you can publish a book, you can start a publication house in a couple of days, you know what I mean? And and we're in this beautiful renaissance where everybody can share their experiences and everybody can have a conversation. That doesn't mean that everything is right or good or uh, valuable to what everybody's going to consume it as, but we are in this like great exchange of information and that we've never seen before. And it's, I think it's our responsibility collectively given that, because I think you're totally right. And I think it's so exciting. I think it's our responsibility at this point to then elevate those voices that have been obscured in the past. Um, Like I, I, I publish with a traditional publisher, right? Currently I've got I've got dreams of doing other things in the future and who knows, but like, I think self-publishing is amazing. And there are things built into established hierarchies like traditional publishing that are inherently racist, for example, sexist, classist, like that stuff is built in. And I think social media, which of course has its own problems, can be the leveler. If somebody can just, just by virtue of having a phone, potentially speak to millions of people without needing permission from a tradition or a publishing house or a TV network or whatever. Um, like how, how cool is that? Um, and I, I do, I think it's time for some of those traditional modalities to, to step back and make room for those voices. I think it's really critical. I think it's our responsibility. I think so too. And um, that's, yeah. That's funny you brought that up. I actually, um, I haven't officially, uh, now I put it on my Twitter, but I am in the process, which I've wanted to do for about a year now, but I'm 
seriously now looking into it after certain things have arised from other publishing houses um, that we don't have to go into. But uh, I am considering heavily starting a, a publication, an occult publication house, specifically cool. elevating uh, queer voices. Granted, That's awesome. I don't know how to start one so we're 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 trucking through that thank but, god for um, the internet thank god for the internet and Praise thank god Titan. for absolutely and thank Praise god for <laughs> and thank god for people who um just the the community in general i mean i know we i feel like sometimes we get caught up in in the the click and the the groups and the subgroups but like i literally just asked the other day i was like one of the important things that I want as a, an occult publication house is to have editors who are familiar with occult concepts, whether they're practitioners or not, but like, I need you to read what we're writing and understand what we're talking about. And like three people were like, oh, I know this person. They're like really good and they're an occultist and they're a public, they're an editor. So like, here you go. And I'm like, cool, thank you. I mean, that's that's amazing. Like what what a time, what a time. And actually, I really love that you also brought up the idea of like books being a snapshot in time at a author's practice or ideas about practice. And I think that's one of those things while we're talking about books, we should definitely bring up the idea of discernment. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you can brought up sometimes you don't need to necessarily absorb and believe everything that you read. You can you can use discernment. You can pick and choose uh, on a certain level. Because I do find, especially one of the cons of the age of the internet, of a time period where everyone is given a microphone, <laughs> is you have people that are so quick to cancel authors, so quick to cancel specific people just because of an opinion they may have had 20 years ago, or because of a, a book that they wrote where they put one specific idea that was actually popular and, and, and normalized at the time. I think there needs to be a recognition that you you don't just throw you literally the baby out with the bathwater. You can't throw a whole book out because the author had a very specific idea. Now, I'm not talking about full-on intrinsic racism or white supremacy or, or um, you know, anti-trans ideas. I'm talking about smaller little things, things that are just slightly suggestive or products of their time. Um, these are snapshots in time. And a lot of times, if you speak to a lot of these authors now, some of them have proven that they are humiliated by some of their early works. Well, I think a good example of what you're talking about, um, I think about The Spiral Dance by Starhawk, which is a mm. community classic, okay? Came, comes out in 1979. It's had two anniversary editions um, and Starhawk has written a foreword in each case, going back and evaluating ideas that now are problematic. Um, so like that doesn't take away from Starhawk's influence, right? Like shouldn't be, you know, you don't want to cancel Starhawk. Okay. But like, we're talking about like a feminist perspectives perspective from the seventies is necessarily going to look different than what we would find acceptable in 2020. I really hope that we get another anniversary edition. Um, because if you, if you listen to Starhawk speak, if you read Starhawk's subsequent works, right, you can see like, okay, this is a person who's evolved, who's on board in a way that I want them to be on board. 
Um, but I remember reading the reading the spiral dance as like a 16 year old, um, deeply uncomfortable with like the concept of womanhood, deeply uncomfortable with my body. And like, I don't wanna hear about sacred periods. Like, I don't wanna hear about like sacred baby making or like sacred motherhood or like cool, but like, no, my 16 year old self was like, like, no, throw the book across the room. And like how great to have the author come back later and like reevaluate a lot of those ideas that were alienating to 16 year old Thorne. Um, yeah, so again, like not to excuse, like I, I feel like I always wanna say like always punch the Nazis, okay? <laughs> like that's not what I'm talking about here. Um, but yeah, books are moments in time we shouldn't, I don't think we should treat books as authorities and of themselves. I think people are always fallible um, and we need to hold people accountable for their ideas, but that doesn't mean that we throw the person away necessarily. Or all the rest of the information that's still right. very good. Right. Or, or on the opposite side of that, you know, do we remove the work from, I mean, it, it is difficult that conversation, Do you, can you remove the artist from the art? But at the same time, you know, uh, a book that's very influential to me in my practice um, has, has really kind of come up in subject of question. Um, oh, sure. Mm -hmm. and, and now I'm, you know, I, I've publicly said, like, you can still read this book. I, I promise it is a actually good book because it is the riotous spirit of witchcraft that I hate that to say that I'm known for but it it is true and um you know that doesn't devoid itself of the importance that it's had on my practice that it will have on other people's practice now does this mean that you have to engage with other works or believe what this uh, this author has said, no, absolutely not. Um, but it still has power in the work itself. And yeah, so books are cool. Right now is cool. I feel like right now is really cool. Also, yeah. this has like been really cool. I'm really glad that we got to sit down and chat because I, I don't know you very well. So this has been, this has been really great. Yeah, I, I really love the internet for how it creates community. And I've always been of the mindset that like internet friends are real friends. Very. Um, and internet communities are real, are real in the same way that like IRL communities are real. Um, I think we tend to be dismissive and, and you're right, kind of even taking that bigger than books and bringing it back around. Like we are living in this golden age. And like, yes, there are problems, of course. Um, there's a lot of heavy stuff happening in our communities kind of at any given moment. But the fact that we can log on and have conversations with people like this, I mean, my 90s teen witch heart would have just burst. Same, same. And to think too, when I started, uh, not to make it about me, um, <laughs> but when I started Bayonex Bramble, the idea that so many authors that I looked up to then at the time have became personal friends. One of them I'm even in a coven with, and that's a big deal. I've met my truest, deepest, uh, best friends through Instagram, so much so that we all sat around and gave ritualistic stick and pokes to each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we 
can't be dismissive of this this really brilliant, amazing time that we're in. Um, yeah, so that's just really wonderful. Thorne, um, can you share with us any future projects you are working on and where can listeners find you? Sure. Um, so the, the big, big project that I'm working on, um, I was actually just accepted into a PhD program with funding. Congratulations. Thank you. So I'm going to descend into the mire of academia once again. Um, and my, I'm kind of seeing, I have this kind of academic fever dream of like, doing a dissertation, but also writing something for popular audiences. Because um, while I am a member like in the ivory tower, I also abhor it for many reasons. Um, I, I want to write about um, what kind of what we've been talking about, social media and the building of tradition. Um, I want to look at religious communities, not just witchcraft communities. I want to look at religious communities online and treat them with the weight that I think they deserve. Um, so that's that's my goal. Um, I'm very excited about it. So we'll see, I'm hoping that there will be articles and whatever that come out of it. Um, so that's the big project. I'm, I'm kind of hitting pause for a second on witchcraft books. I know there will be more, but for right now, like I'm trying to, I'm trying to think outside of my community again. Um, as far as finding me online, um, as Marshall said, I am really getting a kick out of TikTok. I do not know how things work. I posted like one of my first like meme trend videos a couple days with like my floating head behind like space, like singing Reading Rainbow. I, I'm, I'm 37 and I don't know how things work sometimes. <laughs> I saw that and I found it <laughs> hilarious. Um, and I'm on, so you can find me, my, my handle almost everywhere is Thorn the Witch and Thorn doesn't have an E on the end. Um, just Thorn the Witch, um, on YouTube, if you search Thorn Mooney, I'll come up and you can see, speaking of snapshots, like 11 years of like me growing on the internet. Some of it is really embarrassing, but I try not to take anything down. Um, so yeah. And then I do have I do have a Patreon where I post um, additional blogs and videos and that sort of thing. So pretty much everywhere except Facebook because I think as we started with like that's definitely a trash fire. <laughs> very much so, very much so. I um I still have deep reservations to join TikTok. Um, yeah, so I understand. It's okay. But I keep sending um, you them anyways. See, I love when people send me them, though, because I can just open it and then I can close it oh. and I don't think about it anymore. And it's it's wonderful. But it, in order to have that app on my phone. No, I can't do it. I can't. Oh, this, is, this is like how old I am, too. I'm just I'll tell you this. My favorite genre of TikTok is like 90s rock stars going to karaoke to sing their own songs and nobody recognizing them. Like that's the side of TikTok I'm on. That's a thing. <laughs> that's totally a thing. I hope Tom York does one. I, I mean, feel that like would surprise me. Uh, my, very, very much so. My favorite story of Dolly Parton is her losing the Dolly Parton impersonation <gasps> contest to a drag queen dressed as Dolly Parton. <laughs> that's Wait, amazing. That was a thing that happened. It really happened. Mm-hmm. She pretended to be a Dolly Parton impersonator to go to a Dolly Parton like impersonator contest and one of the drag queens dressed up as her won over her 
And mind you, I believe, if I remember correctly, I could be making this up to embellish the story, but if not, who knows? It's my podcast. I can do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end, like the people involved with the competition knew this, they weren't making the judgment call that was, that the host wasn't. So she ended up crowning her impersonator and revealing it at the same time. Good job <laughs> from the real Dolly. I love, I love her. I love her. You've been listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I am Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Witch of Southern Light or Twitter at Marshall WSL. I'm Austin Bain X Bramble on Instagram uh, and Twitter. And that's it for now, Thorne. You already said so, but where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Thorn the Witch and on YouTube by searching Thorn Mooney. As a Patreon-supported podcast, I'd like to take a moment to thank our top-tier patrons. Cindy, Colin, the Witch of Papsco Forest, John, Giles, Jennifer, Shayna, Florence, The Modern Babylon, V, CDJ, Keith, Josie the Mountain Troll, Jens, Adity, Timothy, Pamela, Nicolette, The Lady Ghost, Seashaw, and of course, Anastasia Beaverhausen. We truly couldn't do this without you. Thank you.